At the Difficult Dialogues National Resource Center, we lead critical dialogues to promote equity, advance justice, and foster transformational systemic change in higher education. My name is Natesh Singh. I serve on the DDNRC Board of Directors. And in today's episode, we'll be centering the voices of Valerian McCulliffe and Libby Roderick, co-authors of Stop Talking, Indigenous Ways of Teaching and Learning in Difficult Dialogues in Higher Education. Following our recent webinar on moving beyond land acknowledgements, in today's conversation, we'll talk about what it means from the author's perspectives to truly indigenize higher education. How can we do that work while recognizing the historical and contemporary power dynamics between institutions of higher ed and native communities, and how we can use intentional dialogue to move towards transformational change? Alarian and Libby, welcome. Uh, thanks so much for taking this time to speak with us today. Uh, let's go ahead and start by introducing you both to our listeners. Alarian, would you like to start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Okay. Uh... Uh, I said, uh, hello, my other self, which is the way our people greet each other every day. And uh, we are Unungan. Uh, the Westerners call us Aleut, but we don't use that, that name because it's given to us by our former oppressors, the Russians. Uh, and I said, the morning tastes good, which is, it's morning here now, and, you know, that's the way we greet each other every day, too. And I said, my name is Kuyach, um, which uh, was given to me when I was four years old by the last Kuyach that was left alive amongst all of my people. And it means that, like an arm extending out from the body, a carrier of ancient messages into modern times, a uh, messenger. Uh, and now I'm living the legacy of my name. I was uh, uh, born and raised on St. Paul Island in the Pribilos in the middle of the Bering Sea. Our people have been occupying the Bering Sea for over 10,000 years and we're still there. Thanks, Hilarion. And Libby, how about you tell us a little bit about yourself? Before I do that, I'd like to say also that Larian has occupied a multitude of leadership roles in the state of Alaska, ranging from starting many of the most critical nonprofit organizations that marry Western science with traditional knowledge and wisdom from Alaska Native peoples. He was the, I think it was Commissioner of Commerce for a while at the state of Alaska. He was the city manager of his hometown on St. Paul Island or on the island itself. Um, and has, is now the director of something called the Global Center for Indigenous Leadership and Lifeways, which really tries to channel elder wisdom onto the planet, um, and many, many other things. So just wanting to um, say a wee bit more. Thank you, Libby. <laughs> um, both of us, if we put our memories together, have perhaps one full memory um, to work with. <laughs> so... Um, I'm Libby Roderick, and I am currently the director of something called the Difficult Dialogues Initiative that is based at the University of Alaska Anchorage. And uh, it has multiple aspects to it, uh, one of which is working. I work with faculty in Alaska at my home campus and around the state and also around the nation and a tiny bit in South Africa um, on everything from helping faculty get better at helping students talk about controversial topics in ways that are respectful 
Not that we have any controversial topics, but just in case one might ever surface, uh, we want our faculty and students to be prepared to engage uh, with respect across difference. Second track of that has to do with the attempt to midwife traditional indigenous ways of learning and teaching into higher education, which we'll be talking about today. Third track has to do with helping faculty talk about toxic behavior inside of their own midst. And the fourth one is a Common Reads program on Books of the Year program. So I have that uh, happening. Um, I'm also the Associate Director for the Teaching and Learning Center at my campus, the University of Alaska Anchorage, and then have a prior history as a singer-songwriter, uh, uh, moving around the world trying to use song and other forms of art to inspire us to protect life on Earth. But before we begin, I want to uh, say something about Libby. Um, she and I have been friends for, what, 25 years or more, uh, you know, and she's been a, a staunch ally for Alaska Native people and their, uh, the ways of uh, uh, learning and teaching in academia. And, uh, uh, and I've known her, you know, for this long time, and I trust her implicitly. Uh, we have done many, many different types of work together along these lines. So um, she is a good person, and she is probably, I would say, our, our best ally in the University of Alaska. So the book that the two of you co-wrote, co-edited, is called Stop Talking, Indigenous Ways of Teaching and Learning, and difficult dialogues in higher education. And on the bottom of page 41 of that book, you explain what you mean by indigenizing education. Uh, you write that indigenizing education means, and I'm quoting here, infusing indigenous values and perspectives into every aspect of higher education, including our teaching practices, research and assessment methodologies, scholarly theories, modes of discourse, conflict resolution strategies, architectural and budgetary choices, hiring practices, and more. We don't mean incorporating small features of them into the status quo, nor do we necessarily mean replacing traditional Western approaches with indigenous ones. We mean giving equal credence to and having the flexibility to draw from indigenous approaches as appropriate. Indigenizing education means that indigenous approaches are seen as normal, central, and useful, rather than archaic, exotic, alternative, or otherwise marginal." End quote. I found that passage really powerful and would like to invite you to elaborate and share some specific examples of how we can do this. How can we go about indigenizing higher education? Well, uh, yeah, well, I, I can't separate that from my childhood. Uh, my generation was the last generation in a fully intact traditional upbringing. And, and so I immersed myself in these traditions which, um, you know, my mom would tell me we would cry when a baby is born and celebrate when we die uh, because that we understand that we are spirit beings before we take physical form. And then when we take physical form, it's very dense. And so we're going to experience the trials and tribulations of this body. Uh, and so we cry. And we celebrate when they die because we go back to our free form, our formless form, I guess. Uh, and uh, this, uh, you know, my mom taught me that at a very early age. 
and the the tradition that our people followed was that uh, uh, the child, uh, the adult had to just provide the space for a child to learn, not tell them what to learn, how to learn, or to define anything. So everything that I learned, uh, I did on my own. And that's a genius of this kind of system because I can expand out to the maximum of my capability without the dictates of, a, of an adult. And of course, today in today's society, we have to, we feel that we have to, you know, instruct the child, uh, uh, tell them what to learn, how to learn, and to define everything, uh, which is totally opposite of what being a Nungan means. And by the way, this way is called the way of the real human being. Uh, and uh, all the cultures in Alaska, uh, Yupik, uh, Diné, uh, uh, Inupiat, Unungan, it all means people or the real people. This is a message from the, our, our, our ancestors to today, and that, uh, that we must strive to, to uh, be present in the moment and in the heart. These are two qualities that are the most important. And the rest will be taken care of. My people lived that way for thousands of years. They, they, they uh, you know, we have stories about them coming out of Egypt, going to out of Mongolia, to Siberia, to Kipchak, and across by skinboat, not by the Bering Land Bridge, as most anthropologists say. And uh, we were the uh, we uh, settled in the Bering Sea along the Aleutian chain, uh, and it's a place that's very hard to eat out of living. And yet, we developed the most densely populated linear mile of shoreline in all of North America for our time. That's quite an accomplishment, and we developed quite a, a, a evolved spiritual system. Uh, you know, our people were the only Alaska natives, as far as I know, that didn't have footwear even in the wintertime. Uh, and uh, we didn't even have food storage technologies, uh, except for air drying. But, uh, you know, and so uh, we did this in a way that the, the people didn't worry about where they're going to get their food the next day. They simply trusted, trusted in yourself, trust in your life, trust in life processes, trust in the universe, trust in uh, who we call a whole, the maker. All of this embodied uh, trust. And uh, and so we developed the most densely populated leader mile shoreline in North, all of North America. And and what what I see when I go to the universities, uh, you know, is um, something where the student is immersed in the mind. And uh, they have to read things, they have to write things, you know, and, and listen to the authority. You know, it's, uh, you know I, I often lament that the, the fact that we've developed this linear system from kindergarten to postdoctor degree, uh, and anything less is considered inferior. Uh, but, you know, we know, as Unagan people, 
that as a child, we are geniuses. Uh, I, I recall seeing a study, I wish I re could remember where I saw it, but it was from Europe, where they studied uh, uh, several hundred children and uh, for their creativity and imagination and rated them. And they, they concluded that every, ch every child is a genius. And that as we get older, we get dumbed down. Well, part of what dumbs us down is the educational system as we've constructed it. Well, wow, there, this is a very large question. Um, and just riffing off of what Alarian just said, um, I know that the elders, some elders I have talked to are concerned that sending their young people to university dumbs them down um, for the reasons he's talking about. And that is because, so the elders talk a lot about this as being the reverse society, where we have things upside down and backwards in terms of what actually matters, right? If the goal is to protect and preserve life on earth and help it to thrive, right? And, um, so the, the, the most important teachings, as Alarian referenced, have to do with ensuring that our young people are educated so they become real human beings. By which my understanding of, and Alarian, correct me if I'm wrong, um, is that we're in right relationship with everything. Including yourself. Including yourself, so that we are restoring and maintaining connection and being in right relationship with our bodies, with our hearts, with our ancestors, with our community members, with our elders, with our future generations, with the plants, the, the land, the waters, the creatures right around us. That that's the point of an education, right? Not to get a job, not to get the best job, not to make a ton of money, not to feed the ego, not to do a lot of other possible things that we might be doing with an education currently, right? Um, it's to actually ensure that we stay in right relationship and therefore it's sort of in reciprocity with, mutuality with, service to, all of life, right? And so from that standpoint, you could say that um, indigenizing education means a couple things. Certainly it means recentering and, and prioritizing 10,000 plus years of knowledge and wisdom from indigenous nations around the planet who have, who have aimed for that goal and frequently achieved it uh, unless disrupted by other parties, right? So one piece of it is to lift up those perspectives, that wisdom and knowledge, those thinkers, those leaders, right? Those voices and so forth in all the different ways that we might. And then within that, or as part of that, it is to somehow restore this uh, awareness of our interdependence with the living world. My experience of indigenous nations, we have seven major indigenous nations in Alaska, and, and subgroups within those. And then of course there are almost 600 indigenous nations within the US alone, and then it goes out to the world, right? Um, is that that awareness, that centering of the lands, waters and creatures upon which we depend, they do not depend on us as a rule, unless we destroy them, which we are in the process of doing, right? Um, 
is the heart of the matter because it, it reverses what we're doing now and restores us to where we need to be if our children are in fact going to survive and that there will be future generations beyond them, not just of children, but of moose and of salmon and of all sorts of species. So that would be one way, I think, of speaking to it. I'll briefly say the obvious, which is that our educational systems are matched with our economies. In every system I've ever seen, right, people are educating their children to succeed in the economy in which they must survive, right? So at the moment, most indigenous peoples that I know are aware of the fact that they have to be walking in at least those two worlds, or as was said in the previous uh, session that we held, stumbling in both of those two worlds because of the pressures on people now. Um, and so this change in an educational system is an enormous thing because we are also realizing as we speak that the current economy is killing us and life itself as we have known it, right? So this move to indigenize education is truly a move to change the way we relate to everything on our planet in the hopes that we can make it. And there's nothing larger than that. You know, what Libby says is so true. The, uh, I work for a group of elders from all over the world right now uh, in a project called the Wisdom Weavers of the World. And uh, we met in Kauai in 2017 for the first time. And we, to answer two questions, one, what is the state of the world as they see it now? And what must we be doing now? And so we produced a 14 minute film that Reuters News Service volunteers to, to promote around the world. And uh, some 80,000 people uh, the first day saw the film. And this film is about uh, how the elders, their, their messages from the elders, how the elders uh, 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 see that Mother Earth has survived for billions of years and she's going to survive for billions more. It's a question about whether or not we humans are going to survive. And that everyone on this Mother Earth today is it has a gift to give to the world to help harmonize our being with with the universe and it comes from the heart uh, they are of the understanding that the only place uh, that we can access the divine the wisdom of the divine is through our heart we can't do it through the mind and we reverse that so that the mind is now telling the heart what to do instead of the heart telling the mind what to do. Uh, you know, there's part of the reversals that Libby's talking about. And this, this reversal from, the, from, from uh, the, before, the mind used to be, the purpose of the mind used to be to implement that which your heart is telling you. And so um, now we don't get that. And so we, we do these things in a way uh, and have repeated ourselves over thousands of years of destroying everything that we know, destroying uh, our loved ones, destroying, and when you separate from your heart, it's easy to, you, you separate from yourself and it's easy to separate from others. And then it's easy to separate from Mother Earth.
So, um, yeah, the elders are saying that this is a critical time and that uh, we need to come to back to our hearts now, not 10 years from now. Uh, the, the, the survivability of the human race is very short now, more short than most people realize. And that we have an obligation to access this gift. And that means, uh, you know, the, 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 someone once said the greatest distance between uh, uh, in the human being is between the mind and the heart. We have to get through what our heart has kept for us over the years of our lives where we have suffered things that are traumatic. And it keeps us from being real human beings, and we need to process that and let it go. The Hopi Maori say, let go of the sides of the riverbank, move toward the center, find those who have done the same, and celebrate. And what that means is letting go of the sides of the riverbank means letting go of all human attachments. And then going to the center means going to your proverbial heart center, and the center of the river of life, because it knows where it's going, we don't. And find those who have done the same is find those who have had the courage, like you had, to jump. And uh, that, the elders are telling me, is going to be the new definition of tribe. Illyrian, I so appreciate you sharing that. And I think that is a perspective that we need to center more intentionally in higher education. But what I want to layer on top of this are issues of power and injustice. So going back to the book that the two of you co-edited, uh, Libby, you wrote a passage that really speaks to these issues. You wrote, quote, We are part of a higher education system in Alaska and beyond that has for centuries marginalized Native cultures and peoples. We do not want this book to contribute to or in any way extend the oppressive history suffered by Alaska Native and Native American peoples at the hands of colonists. For centuries, scientists, researchers, authors, businesses, corporations, military representatives, government agents, spiritual seekers, hunters, fishers, and others have come to mine for data, knowledge, stories, experiences, adventure, recreation, plants, animals, natural resources, and more. Most of them have shown little concern for the local inhabitants, the suffering and dislocation caused by colonialism, and the fractured relationships left in their wake. Many have profited from or built careers on the basis of what they have taken from Native communities, while failing to share the profits, attention, credit, or even results with those communities. It's time, past time, to build a genuinely equitable educational, not to mention social, political, and economic system in which Native and non-Native communities function as true partners." End quote. So I want to spend some time speaking about this dynamic in particular. Uh, how is it that we're centering justice and these types of conversations and partnerships? How can we ensure that we as higher education institutions, as faculty, as students, as staff, as administrators, are learning from and with Native communities without exploiting them and without perpetuating the marginalization and oppression that's occurred for centuries. Let me just start off with something that I'm attaching to what we just said, which is that I've had many, many Native folks say to me over the years, things like this. 
the, the, the ways of Western civilization have a lot of gifts in them. In the same way that the mind is a beautiful thing. A good mind is a beautiful thing. And so no one is putting down the, the strengths and the benefits that the current dominant system holds for humanity right, and the world. And they are many. Um, the issue becomes when we think they are the only ones or the only real ones, or the only legitimate ones, or the ones that get to make the final call on everything, or the ones that get to decide where all the grant money goes, or the ones who get to define what a real you know, curriculum should look like, or who should really qualify for being a faculty member, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The issue is not that we don't have gifts and strengths in the system. It's that we choose to control everything and be the only system that is legitimate, okay? So I want to say that because it's important. Nobody's trying to deny the benefits that have come from the system, and they are many. It's this issue of being having to always be at the center and in control of everything, right? And so in terms of the, the justice issues that you're talking about, for example, right? Um, you know, I've worked with a number of faculty who will bless their hearts on, on, on the strength of some of the work that we've done at the campus, come and say, is my research based in colonization? Right. And I will say, yeah, it is. And they're like open to saying, what do I do? Right. How do I change that? And obviously we're up against institutional racism. The, you know, the National Science Foundation started with a certain group of people and that is still permeating everything it does. Right. And the net effect is that some, I'll just say it, usually white, but non-native researcher shows up for two weeks in an Alaska village. They have never been there before to extract a couple of pieces of information about moose or about salmon. And boy, Alarian has a great story about this or beavers or what have you, right? Um, without interacting with the people, the place, 10,000 years of knowledge and wisdom about the very thing that they're asking about. They've only been funded to look at one teeny slice of the ecosystem, not how it is actually part of a greater, you know, web of interacting parts, right, a system. And the money will go to them, it'll go to their university, they might make a, a, a write something up about it that makes their career boost. Right? And the community will never hear from them again. That's a standard model, right? And people are then surprised why they show up in that village, you know, the next time, and people aren't all that open with them. Hmm, you know? And Alarian has made the point many times to me that the elders are super on it and perceptive. And if the person comes up that way, they're probably not going to say anything to them. Right? Partly because, as he has said many times, knowledge without wisdom is dangerous. This partial information people are extracting is actually potentially dangerous outside of a, a context in which it belongs and oh, the wisdom to apply it wisely, right? And so that's just one example. But um, so more justice, so to speak, of course, means that the people from whom that knowledge and wisdom is taken should be benefiting, as you say, right? And um, some of that is as basic as taking your lead from the people there, that you don't construct your research project completely by yourself in Washington, D.C. with a bunch of non-native people who've never been to the Arctic, 
and then come impose it, right? Flip the whole thing. And that's why the elder saying it's a reverse society is always so useful. Flip the whole thing over. It starts with the people there. What do they need? What do they know? What can we do to serve that? The resources of a higher education institution are stunning. And if they are put in service of the people who need those resources, or they are paid, the people on the ground are paid to do their own research, right? That, that means changing the criteria at the NSF, which we have tried to do many times. There was a recent letter sent again about how the research system is a colonizing one, right? But so, so that's one little example of how um, folks should be benefiting from this. They should be leading, right? They should be leading anything that impacts them. And, and you've heard, I'm sure, many times the statement, you know, nothing about us without us, right? That we need to stop doing meetings about women when all the people there are men, right? You know, that's not just true for indigenous people, it's true for everybody, right? Um, so yeah, there should be payment. Oftentimes indigenous people are not paid for what they do. I mean, this is just a starting point because we may want to even get out of that system if we can but they should be leading thinkers. They should be in from the beginning. Um, you know, leadership in our higher educational institutions should always have people from that place at the center, right? There should be more indigenous faculty, of course, so that the and indigenous students can see themselves and shape things so that it, it reflects their own values and needs. And the truth is, and I, you know, this is what we said to Ford Foundation to get that initial grant. The truth is, that what benefits indigenous peoples benefits everybody because of these traditions of being in right relationship with everybody. And I'm not saying indigenous peoples are perfect because I know a lot of indigenous people and they're no more perfect than any other group of people. It's a cultural technology. It's a cultural wisdom. It's not individual, you know, superhumans or anything. It's a way of being that is more sustainable for everybody. And at this point, um, benefiting anything that benefits indigenous peoples is critical um, for life on Earth. Yep. You know, Libby touches on lots of things that we could spend hours talking about. Indeed. Uh, but, uh, you, know, I, you know, I used to work for the Alaska Native Science Foundation. And we, we, they were funded primarily through NSF. But what, what you know, I, I, the director asked me to write a proposal that takes into, uh, makes the native way of knowing predominant. So I did, I found a way to bridge it, to uh, convert the, these things that we know into numbers, which is what National Science Foundation wants. Uh, but uh, they were so engrossed in their own system that they decided to defund us. And the Na Alaska Native Science Commission shut down. Uh, now, the story that Libby was referring to that I, I have many stories, but this is one where the Native people of the interior of Alaska, uh, uh, the chiefs were called into a meeting with they wanted to go to a meeting that the science person uh, would explain what they're doing with moose and counting them and what he was doing was taking aerial transects 
and counting the ratio of, of bull moose to female moose because the moose were declining and the state wanted to know why. Uh, and so they listened very patiently for about 45 minutes to, to his explanation. Then the head chief, uh, the, uh, the prime chief says, um, did you notice that the water levels are going down in our rivers? He said, no, that's, uh, he said, no, that's hydrology. That's the hydrology department. You know, you, you should go to them to ask about that. And then, but he, the, the chief just didn't shake off of what he was saying. He said, uh, do you know that when the water levels go down in our rivers, the forage that you see disappear? And he said, no, you know, that, you know, again, this is not my specialty. I'm doing aerial transects. And then the chief continues on. Um, did you notice that there are more beaver dams in the area? And, because, and, and beaver are proliferating throughout Alaska. They're even above the Arctic Circle for the first time in living memory because of climate change. And uh, so, no, you know, beavers is another division that, you know, they study beaver. So, uh, but the guy wanted to say something that would be responsive to what the chief was saying. And he said, well, maybe you should take this up with the board again. And you could hear the silent groans of the, chief, the seven chiefs that were at this meeting because they know that uh, that the, the board of game follows conventional science rules uh, and that and that uh, they don't know anything about native ways of knowing so the standard is that the best available science should be used and the best available science by definition is western science uh, and so that's just uh, to expand on what Libby was saying and this is so huge that this question of the intersection between Western science, which has so many strengths and so much good in it, and traditional ways of knowing from an indigenous standpoint, which has so much good in it and, you know, so many strengths. This is a very large question that we probably don't want to go into in this podcast. And there have been books, you know, written about it and, and people are really wrestling with that one because, um, both of them are critical in different ways. Um, and one of the things that um, I remember also hearing about, we're, also what we're speaking to is there is colossal injustice in the legal system uh, in terms of indigenous folks. And, and I'll just say that one example Laren has mentioned in the past has to do with the fact that our law doesn't recognize collective ownership or collective rights. So when people say have a tradition that their job is to serve their elders and they go out fishing or hunting for the entire village or for elders in addition to themselves, they will often get legal fines because they're only supposed to be out hunting or fishing for one or maybe two people because that's the Western model. And we can think about that in an educational sense, right, in terms of individualism at the heart of the way we are teaching about learning, for example. And there are many, many cultures, and not even cultures, but feminism comes into the picture as well, that, that talk more about the real efficacy of collective learning, right? Or relational learning, or, right? 
uh, working in groups or learning how to cooperate, learning how to collaborate as critical parts of the learning, that the process itself is part of the learning. We're teaching as much about that as we are the content that we're teaching, right? If we're competing one-on-one -on -one against each other for good grades, we are teaching something there, right? Um, so I wanted to say that, um, and I also wanted to say in this context that one of the tip-offs for the ways in which we are colonizing without intending to, and it often comes into a, a, a higher ed system, and it's really difficult to not do it. Let's just acknowledge that we're all caught in a matrix right now, that people of very good intention who wish to decolonize in all the ways that means, and that doesn't just apply to indigenous peoples, is my understanding. Um, education, we're up against a system. So don't blame yourself if you're not able to pull this off perfectly because we're up against a big, long history of structures, policies, and so forth. It makes it difficult to apply these things at the level and, and at the breadth that we would like to. But one of the tip-offs can be, for example, the idea that we're going to quote unquote, incorporate indigenous ways of knowing uh, and, and so on into whatever it is we're doing which basically says, I'm gonna leave the current dominant structure in place, extract something from your culture, stick it in mine and go forward, which is the same critique we often get with sustainability. It's kind of the, I'll change my light bulbs out. So now that they're all LED and that'll be my contribution to you know, ensuring that there's a livable world for our, our young people. Well, it doesn't actually work. The truth is we have to be part of this concerted, you know, and we're seeing it now, we are doing this podcast in the middle of the, uh, an extraordinary moment in human history when Russia has invaded Ukraine, Russia, which is a nuclear superpower. I used to work on this issue 40 years ago. This was what I was doing in Difficult Dialogues. Um, that is changing the, you know, geopolitical uh, realities of the world as we speak, right? But we need to change the whole game right now. And that can be overwhelming for all of us, right? But it is true that if each one of us tries to move something forward, understanding that it's part of a larger move, right? And we keep doing everything we can, knowing that just incorporating one or two things from indigenous peoples isn't okay, and it isn't enough, and it can be colonizing, and it's all those things. And still we do something, still we do something, but with the intention that we will keep moving towards justice for indigenous peoples, for starters, and towards right an educational system that actually provides for a future. Yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I constantly agree with <laughs> what, what she said because it's, it's so much in line with what native people uh, do. And of course, what we're sharing is from our perspective uh, and our relationship with the, the tribes here in Alaska. It's very different than uh, uh, Lower 48, for example, or any other indigenous group around the world um, that we recognize that there's unique uh, aspects of all of their cultures. But what we're trying to talk about is things that uh, we feel that all the indigenous people around the world uh, that uh, understand these kinds of things uh, are uh, uh, hold in common. Uh, so anyway, I want to divert and go back to what you said, Libby. Uh, 
you know, I was, um, I led the effort to get subsistence rights for Halliman. Uh, and it took four years. Now, mind you, our people have been eating halibut for 10,000 years as proven by examination of the midden sites. And here we don't even have the right to collectively get halibut. And, you know, even when uh, an old man and his wife, uh, he they were Yupik, and they went in and, and took the halibut from the commercial catch, and they took the undersized halibut that's against the law. And, and they said, well, why do you do that? And they said, well, you know, we've got to, you know, it's already dead. We have to not waste food. Uh, but they were arrested anyway. Uh, so we took action and uh, took four years to get there. But, but what we ended up with was regulations that were made for the Western world. It didn't recognize our collective rights. It recognized individual rights, and they it had they had to put in language because of the animal or the uh, environmental groups about waste, and you know we have to abide by standards that most of America doesn't have to abide by, and and we don't waste food, uh, and then they they said well your uh, the regulation calls for. Um, uh, you as Libby mentioned, uh, you can fish for one or two people, but you have to register, and you only allow two halibut. Now, traditionally, we go out. A guy, a, per, a boat goes out. They catch maybe thirty or forty halibut, bring it back, and give it to the village. Now we're having a hard time with that. That's just uh, another example of the injustices that exist. Well, and educationally speaking, I mean, I went to Yale and I remember going to my philosophy professor and saying, why don't you teach any native philosophy? All the philosophy was, of course, European. That was taught as philosophy, right? And I've had this conversation with economists before. Why don't they expand the perspectives and the ways in which economics is perceived by different cultural groups? And it goes from there. We've had issues around institutional racism with our nursing students, because when they have to be taught to uh, succeed at the licensing exams, the licensing exams will ask them questions about treatments that they find culturally offensive. They would never treat someone that way. And they're forced to answer on that basis or fail the exam, right? So when we bring up things like the legal institutions that seem separate from educational institutions or these regulatory issues, they're not really. They're built in and baked into the system. And, and so at every level, we're having to sort of wrestle with how to decolonize, so to speak, um, the system. Yeah, you know, it's, I, I have to say this. It's kind of maddening to, to deal with everything separately in separate boxes uh, where we don't think that way. We, we think about whole systems. Uh, you know, scientists, they take apart pieces of nature and study it to determine what the whole piece is doing, you know, to study what's happening to the ecosystem. You know, and, and it's, what we uh, understand is that everything is connected. Everything is connected, including with the, the natural world. And, and we don't 
cut it into pieces. So we understand that the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. And they interact synergistically to create this new form that you cannot understand just by taking one piece of nature. Uh, uh, you know, this is, this is maddening to me because we are still using these systems to try to deal with climate change, for example. And it's not working. And no one will admit that it's not working. So true. I mean, it, it, exactly where my mind went, which has to do with how long it took us to realize that there are these quote unquote positive feedback systems that are actually negative feedback systems because of the siloing of the different kinds of disciplines. Um, you know, and again, there's a lot to be said for be becoming a specialist, a lot to be said for it because of the extraordinary depth of knowledge that people can have in a particular area. But if they are not simultaneously taught to be transdisciplinary and interdisciplinary so that they're constantly working in that system, we miss these critical pieces. And there are also, I will just say, I was just informed of the fact, I believe this is true, that because we don't have the data for certain things, uh, one of them, I believe, being permafrost melting, which is happening in the Arctic. And why the Arctic matters is we are the air conditioner for the world. If you haven't figured that out, everything is connected. Um, and so because we didn't have the data for that, it wasn't included in the models. Kind of knocked the breath right out of my body that I think they are seeking funding for more data to be collected about permafrost melting because we don't have it and that makes perfect sense it's difficult to get data in places like the arctic it's very vast and it's very challenging and i totally get it right but to therefore not be putting it into the models took the breath out of my body i have to say and that's an that's another piece that often happens is that we we put money into say modeling which is great and useful but meanwhile, there are people right on the ground up here in the Arctic who have been tracking something for 10,000 years and their lives depend on accurately tracking it because they live off of the harvest from that land, right? So that is a form of sciencing, as one of our elders used to say, um, that the world really needs to honor. We have triple PhDs up here in the form of our elders. Right? that know stuff about ecosystems that would blow your mind, could talk about salmon for three weeks in detail, right? Sciencing. And our systems, again, currently don't reflect that extraordinary. The, and, and when they say when an elder dies, a library burns, right? We have a whole bunch of libraries sitting up here that nobody has been listening to or paying attention to. And that is true around the world, right? Not, of course, just here. Yep. Uh, you know, most people don't know that Alaska probably has more elders than any other place in the U.S. per capita. Um, and uh, it, it, it's such a inspiration and wealth of knowledge and wisdom that, that we access, but the rest of the world doesn't. Um, now, in reference to transdisciplinary, I feel that that's important. Because we're so specialized, we don't, um, we are multidisciplinary, yeah, but transdisciplinary, what is that? Yeah, and uh, so I, you know, one time I worked on a project uh, with, with Russian scientists from the Shirsov Institute of Oceanology and the Russian Academy of Sciences. 
Michael Flint was the head of it at the time, and he brought up uh, uh, eight other scientists, and they all were transdisciplinary. They could work in the other's field with competence. And, uh, and so I thought, well, after surveying and trying to find scientists in the U.S. that more came close to what Unungan understand about the world, uh, we couldn't find any. And so I went to Russia and, and thankfully I got Michael Flint, who was the deputy director of the Shurasov Institute of Oceanology, and he oversees a, a thousand marine scientists. And we ended up in a project that we funded, Unungan people funded, that lasted for four years with these scientists to find out what's happening in the Bering Sea ecosystem. And we came up with a report that must have been, you know, a foot and a half thick uh, with, with things that uh, would blow most people's minds away. If they, if they knew what was in this report, they would have different perspectives on the value of Unungan knowledge about the sea. Uh, but uh, it wasn't, we got it published in Saudi Arabia, in uh, uh, Australia, in North America, uh, 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 Europe, Japan, Asia, uh, but we couldn't get it published in the U.S. Why? Because the peer group review system that was reviewing this in the U.S. said, this is primitive science. And so it never, it still isn't published today in the U.S. Um, but what it contains is information that will revolutionize the way science is done in the sea. So just one other example. The reason we keep bringing up science, for starters, is that is where the heart of the differences between the two systems really comes to light. And because the modern university is based in a scientific paradigm the social sciences, right? Every, everybody sort of had to move towards a scientific data-based, evidence-based model. There are good reasons for that. I would submit that they have to do with a, a sort of a European internal family issue, which has to do with pushing back against the church originally and wanting to stake out the fact that you cannot just base your knowledge on opinions or beliefs or religious ideologies or superstitions. Western science has a reason why it got to where it is, right? But there are limitations uh, to the current model. And, and so we don't, you know, it's not a criticism, um, but it is the entire educational system is based in that paradigm. And I also want to say that um, when we go back to the issue of justice, that our indigenous peoples here and certainly elsewhere are the extraordinary survivors of extraordinary collective trauma in the same way that uh, people of African heritage are in the U.S., right? Extraordinary collective trauma. And they often suffer from a host of ailments that have come from that. But that is largely because we have displaced this deeply connected, systemic, you know, uh, place-based way of being and forced it into this other way of being, right? And that dislocation, people are still suffering from that. So the justice issue is critical in this work to ensure the restoration of, of peoples and individuals and uh, as well as the whole. 
So what I'm loving about this conversation is that we really are getting at the root of these issues. And it's reminding me of the webinar that we hosted earlier this year on moving beyond land acknowledgements. Because while I think that the three of us agree that land acknowledgements are important, I know that one of the reasons that land acknowledgements have taken off across higher ed is because it's so easy. It's easy to put something at the end of your email that acknowledges the land that you're on. It's easy to make a statement before you give a presentation. But often the things that are easy are not getting at the root of the issue because the things that lead to transformational change are hard. And Alarian, going back to one of the things that you alluded to earlier, in institutions of higher education, if you want to be a faculty member, you need to have at least a master's degree and more frequently you need a PhD. And what a policy like that doesn't recognize is that some members of Native communities have developed PhD-level knowledge through Indigenous systems of teaching and learning. So personally, what I would love to see is higher ed institutions seeing that experience as an acceptable level of preparation for college teaching. And that would be a radical change, one that many institutions of higher education, I think for various reasons, would be very resistant to making. So what I'm trying to surface here is that the changes we need to make are really radical ones. And for the people who are listening to this podcast, who are working in higher education and trying to create change, what advice do you have for them in terms of how to go about creating that level of radical transformational change? Well, you know, my elders say that the most unselfish thing that you can do is heal yourself then you can offer the world that which you do not have now. And I don't know if it was Gandhi that said, you know, uh, you must be the change that you wish to see in the world. And uh, if, you know, we criticize others on the outside because we're criticizing ourselves on the inside, we judge others on the outside because we're judging ourselves. We trash Mother Earth because we're trashing ourselves. We're separated from others because we're separated ourselves. And that uh, what what they talk about is self-healing uh, and coming from the heart instead of the mind. Uh, the mind is fine when you have a discipline and it's following the heart. But when it's not there, you get the chaos that you see in the world today. And And so, you know, we need to first heal ourselves and only then can we think outside the box um, but in the meantime individuals who are struggling against this institutional racism um, uh, are going to still be there so you have to decide individually what do you do and and i would say what you do first is go into your heart now your heart will tell you what you must do it never lies and it guides us always impeccably, impeccably right. And so when we do that, the rest is taken care of. So let me say a few things because I, I have worked in higher ed all these years. I know how discouraging it can feel to be one person in one department and one uh, sitting at one desk trying to figure out what do I do, right? When my my living and my children perhaps may be dependent upon my salary or, you know, the situations people find themselves in. Um, so first, I want to, of course, echo what he just said, 
right? That if you aren't in right relationship in the first place with your own being, it's going to be tough to do the right thing. And in fact, it has been my experience that ceremony, which is so central in indigenous cultures, is about getting us and helping us stay in right relationship with our own selves and with the living world on which we depend. Um, so well, for whatever that means to people in this context. But so um, one of my thoughts is uh, joining with others, right? Which we don't do a lot of, again, in higher education because it's very individualistic, but joining with others. Know you're part of a larger movement here, right? There are people, this is when we teach, Alarian and I teach these workshops for faculty all over the place, you know, uh, part of that is to help them find each other, right? Who Who is in this work together? Know that you are not alone, right? We are, and you're not going to do it by yourself. You're going to do it in concert with the rest of us. We are all pushing back in a whole bunch of different ways against a system that is not working for pretty much anybody at this point, right? Um, so you are not alone. And your work may look different than someone else's, but join hands with others. Uh, it's one of the beauties of the Difficult Dialogues National Resource Center, right, is that we're bringing people together from all over the place who are trying to move towards justice and a living future for, for all. Um, so that's one thought that I have. Another thought that I have to, as an empowering move is to, is to talk about it. One of the strategies I adopted when I got to my campus 21 years ago was to pretty much in every conversation bring up indigenous issues. Now, I'm a white woman, so I, I'm not trying to speak for indigenous people, um, but I would make linkages in almost every conversation that would bring up indigenous people's issues, perspectives, concerns, whatever, right? This was an intentional campaign of culture change. I've done it with the climate crisis as well, right? Every time I go to an interview for a person who might be hired to do the next thing, you know, some chancellor, provost, whatever that spins through our campus, right? Um, I will raise those issues, right? Every time I was in a faculty meeting about some kind of pedagogy we were doing, I would mention something I had read or I knew about or a question I had, right? And and it, it just kept the conversation alive and it introduced it in places where it never had been before. And, you know, and in concert with a whole bunch of other stuff going on that I did, and of course, a lot of other people on my campus are working on these issues. We have had a culture change over time where those, where I don't have to be the person in the room raising them. Somebody else does, right? Yay. Um, so if you can't think of anything else, you can always say something. This is what we say about the climate crisis as well. Just ask somebody, what do you think about the weather? Isn't it kind of weird? Do you think it has something to do with climate change, right? You can do the same thing with indigenous issues. Wow, I just heard this podcast and here's one thing that came out of it. What do you think of that, right? Here's this article I found. Would you read it and see if you think it has anything to do with <clears throat> how we're teaching? <clears throat> we have a free book we'll talk about, Stop Talking. You can download it online free of charge. We set it up that way, right? Get that out and decide to have a book discussion group with your peers, your colleagues, right? It's free. I will help you, you know? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So never underestimate the power of talking about something that is never talked about, even if you don't do it perfectly. It's okay, right? Another thing in the book, of course, there's a whole bunch of ways of teaching. 
that we tried to parse out. We had to tear them apart from this integrated system in Native communities where everything is, in fact, connected. But we tried to parse out things, you know, storytelling, learning from your elders, slowing down your pace, and, you know, integrating silence and pausing into the way that you teach, nonverbal ways of learning. I mean, I can go on and on, learning directly from the land. Um, you know, pick one. This is what we did with the faculty in, in some of the intensives I've done. Pick one of those and try to think about how it would change your class. We have a faculty member at my campus who listened to, worked with us in these intensives and decided to take storytelling on as, um, as the thing that she was going to integrate into her health policy class. And she changed the whole course to have the students do the reading outside of the class. And then in the class, it was all based on storytelling. And she got people from the community to come in and talk about health policies that they had implemented, what the story was, how did it go, what were the struggles, how did it work out, what would they do differently. The people were knocking on her door, beating on her door. They wanted to get to tell their story. And the students got real life stories about real life health policy on the ground, not just what we read about, right? Just one tiny example. But so people listening, you know, who are, in the various roles that we're in. Of course, if you're in a role of power, thinking about re-looking at P&T requirements for promotion and tenure, or who gets hired and why. I do all this work, right? How do we look at the people we're hiring and change how we look at their research? Because wow, I'll tell you, indigenous folks are doing research we haven't seen before. Publishing it in non-existent almost journals, where there are a few, but that most of the faculty in that department won't recognize as the cool journals with a lot of legitimacy. Why? Because they're not publishing this stuff, right? So, you know, everybody can move this thing forward somehow, right? Yeah, you know, the, the Hopis say that the time of the lone wolf is done. We, we, we are at a point in time in human history where we need each other. And what Libby is talking about, you know, that we need to reach out in relationship to others to share our stories about what we're trying to do in terms of indigenizing the education. Um, that is uh, really very, very powerful and can be very powerful. Uh, so I would encourage people to, to do exactly what Libby is talking about which would be to share what, you, what, what you're doing. And out of that may come up some solutions to what you can do under the circumstances. This, uh, but, you know, there, so, and realize, like Native people do, that, yeah, you know, that's a challenge, but it's only a challenge. It's not a problem. Uh, that we can make changes, real changes. And, that, and I can't emphasize enough the need to change our educational institutions now because we don't have much time. To learn more about the Difficult Dialogues National Resource Center and how we can support your efforts to create transformational change in higher education through equity and justice-focused dialogues, visit our website at www.difficultdialogues.org.